I'm Eric. I'm Lucas. And we are the Modern Agronomists. We are putting a modern spin on an old industry. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Modern Agronomist. Today we will be talking with Ben Franz from Country Visions Co-op. Uh, today we're going to focus on some cover crops. So uh, we thought it'd be a good idea to bring Ben in. He's had some um, experience working with cover crops, uh, different species, different timings, different seasons when put on. So uh, thank you for coming today, Ben. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been working in agriculture? Well, I guess I uh, I do everything by cropping season. So 2021 will be my 12th season as an agronomist. Um, prior to that, I would say since probably about 2003, I've been in a, some sort of the agronomy field or um, in a different line of work, but still in agriculture. So cover crops, um, I think they've really got a, they've kind of gained some steam here the last few years. I don't know if you'd agree with that. That's kind of what I've seen. But uh, how long have you been kind of focusing in or when did you start work with them, I guess, per se? I would say my first experience was probably maybe about five, six years ago. Um, I had a, a dairy producer that needed more forage, so we kind of focused on the rye uh, just to get some spring forage for his heifers, dry cows. That was probably the start of it. And then the year after that, I had a few dairy farms that kind of the same situation, I guess. We were getting a little long on our rotations with corn silage, so we were needing way to kind of break up the rotation a little bit and possibly the ability to get another year of corn silage in the rotation. So looking at SNAP Plus, obviously um, we started playing with some different figures and we found out that if we put a small grain uh, into the rotation, we could actually get another year of, of corn silage out there. So we ended up going with a lot of barley, a lot of oats, and that's what really kind of started it all. Um, it was something simple, something simple that we could do, and it gave us the ability, like I kind of mentioned, to kind of bring that rotation out just a little bit longer. We mostly started working with on the feed end of things to how to utilize or get the most feed for, for your growers is how you kind of got into this. Yeah, I, I would agree with that, absolutely. How did that translate over to a cover crop? How did they say, okay, we're growing this for feed, and then how did the conversation shift and all of a sudden it became a cover crop? I think that probably happened more with just everything that was going around. I mean, every publication, every any magazine that you opened up was largely right. based off of soil health and, and, and cover crops. And I think that's what probably led that decision or even that conversation to kind of shift away from just the feed side of things and looking, hey, you know, maybe there's some benefits to playing a cover crop just for that cover crop. Um, maybe it's from saving the soil or whatever it may be, I think that kind of made that shift to explore it a little further. Yeah, I'd agree that, you know, a lot of these publications coming out is when I really started seeing this stuff the last few years. I mean, experience I always thought of a carp crop is if you can't get another crop planted, prevent plant acres or whatever, you're going to throw a cover crop. But obviously there's a lot more to it with, you know, feed needs, soil health needs, erosion needs, all that stuff, which which is pretty interesting. The other thing that, at least from my perspective, that we've been finding out is, I mean, especially in a lot of the dairies, I mean, a lot of the manure applications are happening when the soil's maybe 50 degrees yet, so we know we have a lot of activity. 
and then you come to plant that corn crop next year and you kind of sit back and you kind of wonder where all the nitrogen went or even all the nutrients. Um, and that was kind of an eye-opening experience to me that the cover crop just isn't a cover crop anymore. It's more of a, a catch crop to actually catch the nutrients from the manure and then hopefully it'll kind of turn us you know, around next year and give it back to the, the main crop if it's alfalfa, if it's corn silage, grain, whatever it may be. Um, seem to kind of fit in nice in, in dairy crop. Have you seen much of a cover crop being planted, let's say on maybe some, some wetter acres or whatever, as far as just sequestering moisture at all in the spring? Do you, do you see that much? So I would say yes. Um, you know, 2019, I guess, would be a, a prime example of that. We were pretty darn wet. Um, you know, a lot of the planting up in our area, which is, you know, probably the Chilton, Chilton, Wisconsin and North, a lot of it was done in June. I had a particular grower that I would say probably about 50% of his 1,600-ish acres were planted in May. And, and I actually remember a specific day I was sitting in my office and I got a phone call and, and he goes, Ben, I'm going to start planting. And I just kind of sat back to my and thought to myself, boy, this is, this is going to be a disaster. So <laughs> I got in my pickup truck and I headed up there and uh, I was walking behind the planter and, and it was an eye-opening experience to me. And basically, you know, to set it up, 2018, it was a, it was a wheat field. Uh, we manured the wheat we actually planted a multi-species cover crop, which was a mix of, of radishes. Uh, we had some red clover in there. We actually had some bin run wheat and then rye. And then obviously we had some wheat that was left over, you know, regrowth. Right. And uh, it was just amazing to me. It was, you know, maybe a little bit on the lighter soil or a little lighter side of the soil. Um, but it was amazing to me that everywhere else driving up there, the fields were wet guys weren't able to get in the field and do the tillage. And yet the farmer was actually able to get out there and, and plant. And it was, what was intriguing to me is there was probably enough biomass from the wheat, uh, maybe even the clover, the rye that was able to basically hold the planter and the tractor above, I mean, basically on the soil surface and not cause any ruts. I mean, the planter is floating across the field beautifully. And I also think because we had how many months of growth from that cover crop, uh, we had a lot of, roots growing in the soil that kind of glued the soil together, if you will. And there was a beautiful placement of the seed. So I would say, yeah, I mean, the wetter soils, to me, if you're going to have a cover crop in it, I think it almost acts as a pump and it kind of helps pump that moisture out of the soil. And I, I think it's something to kind of keep in mind that potentially you could get out there earlier versus having to work it to dry it. Sure. You kind of mentioned you had uh, in this particular case a, a big mixture of, you know, multiple products. I guess keying in on what is what is your kind of go-to or your your major one that you you see. I, I understand that whether we're looking for feed or different different options, but what is maybe a couple of your favorite um, practices to do? As far as the actually cover crops that I choose, I would say rye is probably by far my favorite. Uh, it's versatile. You can plant it from. You can plant it after wheat. You can plant it after corn silage, grain, corn, soybeans. I mean, I, I guess I've seen it all done. I've planted it all the way up to, I would say, probably November. Not had a lot of growth in fall, but come spring, it is amazing to see how quick and how much green you have out in the fields. Um, I would say rye is by far my go-to, but it depends on it depends on the situation. You know, if I, if I have a grower that is looking to have something simple, something easy that is going to winter kill, then I would say barley by far is my favorite, and then followed by oats. Uh, 
and anything that a guy wants to overwinter rye has been my go-to. Um, if you're looking to maybe bust up compaction, something like that, I guess I'm largely invested in turnips, radishes, uh, the clover species from red clover to crimson clover. Uh, two are my favorite legumes, I would say, by far as well, uh, just to get some nitrogen you know, produced in the ground more or less. So I've got a question for you, Ben, and just to set the stage, Ben works with a particular dairy that is doing some really fantastic things with cover crops, and they're trying new things, and I guess I just want you to tell the story kind of behind this dairy in, in particular and how this e- evolved from day one to now and maybe some of the practices they're using and maybe some of the things that are working and not. So, uh, yes, I, I work with a, a fairly decent-sized uh, dairy operation, and it's I'm going to call it largely a one-man show. There's limited time in spring to get across a lot of, a lot of ground and get it planted, and they don't have a lot of manpower to do it. Uh, Prior to maybe five years ago, you know, they ran two field cultivators, they ran a disc, they had two chisel plows. There's a lot of equipment that had to be, there's a lot of equipment needs that had to take place in spring to get the fields leveled and prep for, for you know, uh, planting. So they were looking for ways to kind of help slim that cost down, if you will. And and one of the reasons I think it started was we, we started looking at the cost to run a field cultivator across the field, and we put a, a dollar value of about $15 per pass uh, for that field cultivator. And, and then that fall tillage pass, I think we put around 18 So he was spending maybe $50 in just tillage passes alone, not not to let, you know, not even to mention the manpower that it took to pick the stone. So that was probably an eye-opening experience again to realize that maybe we should look at alternatives. So I think the cover crop and the no-till kind of came in into play on that particular farm. Um, so th- they've been doing everything from uh, interseeding to this past season in 2020. I got to experience co-seeding, which was actually we planted red clover and corn the same day, uh, which actually turned out pretty well. Um, but I would say largely the biggest thing that they're doing, again, is rye. And the rye is going in after corn silage, it's going in after grain, it's going in after soybeans if there's beans in the rotation, it's going in after the wheat. I would say rye by far is the heaviest used cover crop that they've been using. How was that clover going on when they were planting the corn? So we actually, it was kind of fun. Um, We actually targeted fields that had either spring manure or even were in fall manure, so we didn't get the cover crop established so we knew knew they were going to need a leveling pass in spring. So he actually has a real disc um, made by McFarland that actually has an airflow box attached to it. So that finishing pass in spring, we were actually putting red clover on. And to bulk up that mix, we also put roughly maybe 20, 25 pounds, maybe not quite even that much, but we put some calisol out there too just to kind of beef up that mix a little bit. So he was actually putting it on with, uh, with the, the airflow unit on his on his real disc before planting corn and it was all done the same day so he ran his real disc he basically seeded that crop he came in behind that with the corn planter planted the corn and uh long behold before long we had clover and corn coming up which is that's pretty impressive it's kind of a neat experience so the clover comes up the corn comes up was you know was the red clover dominating the stand for a while to a point, and then the corn kind of took over, kind of walked through the timeline of, of the growing season and how maybe one crop affected the other? So I would say that, you know, it was my biggest fear, I guess, was with the corn, with the competition, because, 
you know, as long as I've been in this, my goal has always been to keep the corn clean from basically emergence, almost, you know, mm-hmm. six leaf. That's always been my goal. And, and it, it was a, it was a, it is an experience to reset your mind and, and, and think that, you know, I'm going to have this crop growing with my main crop and the effects that it's going to do on it. But it was amazing. It never really seemed to affect the corn. The corn seemed to pop right out of the ground. And I would say the corn outgrew the rye, or I'm sorry, the corn outgrew the clover for a long time. Uh, weed control was another concern of mine. And actually, it turned out really well. Um, I, I, we actually pre-emerged. I mean, as soon as the corn planter pulled out of the field, we pre-emerged a, right late, a light rate of dual. And not a lot. I mean, I was less than a pint an acre. And uh, it continued to keep the field fairly clean until I would say knee high. And the grasses were good. We had a nice green mat in most of the field, uh, which I think kind of kept down the weeds. Uh, but we did have enough brow leaves, which kind of freaked me out. But I had a conversation with a, a fellow agronomist, and he kind of turned my attention to a product that I've heard of but I never used, and it was Moxie. So I started reading the label. It was labeled for alfalfa. Um, hopefully I won't get in trouble for it. But we ended up using Moxie across the corn. And it actually worked beautifully. I mean, it, it smoked almost all the brow leaves that we had out there. And the clover was, the, the worst part that happened is is there were places where we dung up, we did ding up the clover a little bit, but uh, that clover was able to recover after that. And I mean, it just, it did well with the corn. And I think that's the biggest thing that I notice is if you are going to do the co-seeding, you have to have something that's going to complement each other. Um, this particular farm as well, we, we did try to grow cereal rye with the corn, and that is something that I'll never do again. But um, when you have two grass crops, I mean, I think there's too much competition there. And the rye loves nitrogen, um, loves fertility, and I just think it sucked it all away from the corn where the clover kind of complemented the corn, and we didn't see the didn't see the issues. So with the clover and the corn, did you adjust your fertilizer recommendations specifically on nitrogen and kind of give some credit to the growing red clover? Or did you, how did you play that out? I think that's a, a great question, but I, I'm not a, a, on this particular farm, I'm not a big user of nitrogen to begin with. I, I think we're pretty efficient with how we apply it. I'll, we're putting maybe about 50 to 60 pounds on with the planter. And it's actually going in multiple locations. Uh, we're actually running it pop-up. They're running a dry two-by-two. Two, and we're also running it out of the back of the planter. So placement, I think, is key. So I, I didn't know how to give credit to the legume. I mean, to my knowledge, uh, we need probably that legume to start flowering before we start to get a lot of nitrogen credit. So we didn't really credit the clover to, to per se to, to drop down the nitrogen rates at all. But... Um, basically what I shot for is about 0.8 pounds of, of nitrogen per bushel. And I would say that we're pretty close to using that pretty efficiently. Mm-hmm. Um, that particular field, we were hitting 234 bushel of dry corn in areas, uh, which we were actually maybe approaching a little less than 0.8 pounds of N per bushel. So um, I did not use the credit at this time, and it's something to keep in mind, but I don't, I don't know how to do it yet. Yeah, yeah. The concern of mine would be, or maybe I've heard or from some growers would be, you know, you said you had a pretty good man out there. Did you get droughty at all late July where where you were noticing that that was, you know, maybe taking too much moisture and hurting the corn or, or not not necessarily? 
No, I, I mean, honestly, it, we were we did get dry. I mean, I, I honestly think the rain probably shut off around July 20th, and we didn't get nothing until around August, mid-August. So we were dry. But, no, I mean, I, if anything, I, I honestly think because we had a decent mat up there, we had a decent mat out there, we couldn't get actually the sunlight down into the rows. And, and I actually think it maybe stopped some of the evaporation from happening so again, I, I didn't see any, you know, bad effects from having that clover out there. One question I have, and maybe we can shift gears here. It's, we talked about the clover, but now the rye. So how does this particular dairy handle their rye? I mean, I've kind of seen a couple different scenarios where people plant green and then make a pass with Roundup or Gramoxone or what have you to burn the rye off. Some people let the rye, you know, get as tall as, as four or five feet and plant through it. What, what is this particular dairy doing? So we're actually managing the rye in different ways, depending on obviously the weather is one play and how we're going to plant the crop and what crop, crop we're going to plant. Uh, so if we're going to stay wet, I actually, we don't terminate the rye too soon. We'll actually maybe terminate a day or two before planting or right after the planter. I mean, there's been times the planter and the sprayer have been running in the same field. Uh, basically, the sprayer has been following the planter. So almost everything is planted green on this farm. My biggest fear that we have seen that if we have a decent amount of biomass out there from that rye and we kill it maybe 10 to 14 days before planting, we actually create a mat across the soil and it doesn't get dry. And then we get a lot more issues with the planter running where if we actually keep that plant or that rye growing and living, it's got more flexibility to it. And that planter can dance across that field a lot easier. So typically the rye is either terminated, like I mentioned, a day or two ahead of the planter or right after the planter, even the same day. But I have not good luck with terminating that cover crop, you know, earlier than, than that. Yeah. Um, when it moves to the soybean side of things, I, I guess I'm not overly concerned with that. Um, we'll actually leave that rye sit out there a little bit longer. Uh, I'm not too worried about the nitrogen getting tied up from the excess growth of the rye, but it is kind of neat because we can go out there with straight Roundup in that particular case. I, I'm not, I, I don't, you know, Roundup, I mean, you start getting any kind of length or height to the to the rye. I mean, it takes Roundup a long time to kill it. Yeah, so. well, yeah it does. But when I got beans out there, I'm not too concerned. So if it takes 14 days for that rye to fully die, I guess I'm kind of happy with that because all I have out there is Roundup, and I know that when that crop or that rye crimps over, I almost got a, another mat that's going to suppress some of the weeds. So mm-hmm. when it comes to beans, I'm a little more flexible on, on the killing, but I'll leave, usually leave that rye stand longer. Do you feel like leaving that stand longer in, in soybeans in this case? Has that helped you maybe eliminate some pre-emerge herbicide, you know, with residual chemistry? Not that, you know, I feel like the world's preaching something else, that we have to have a pre-emerge herbicide with long residual chemistry. But do you feel like you were able to tone that back because of the rye? I would say, yeah. I mean, you look at most of my conventional soybean programs, and you're talking at least 20 bucks an acre up front, you know, for the herbicide pass. And Honestly, in this case, I really kind of scratched my head of what to do. So um, Roundup was basically the burn down, and in some cases I had nothing else in the tank. And if I did, maybe it's just a pint of a duel or a brawl or whatever, you know, pick your poison. Yep. But it hasn't been, you know, 
hasn't been nothing extreme. And then when I came back to looking at that, you know, I like to spray a lot of my beans when there may be three, four trifoliates. And it, it was a hard decision because it's like I can come out here with straight roundup. There's not a lot out here to kill necessarily, but I know that at some point this crop is going to start to break down or the residue is going to break down and I could have some issues. So I have been using more residuals on the backside with that pass of Roundup just to clean things up and, and to give me an extra barrier so hopefully nothing else comes through. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say, yeah, I mean, you look at any kind of crop, and I don't care if it's corn, if it's a legume, whatever it is, I mean, they all give up off some chemicals. So, um, I mean, that kind of the whole aleopathy effect, I mean, their aleochemicals is basically what it's called. So I think that dying rye potentially creates a mat obviously it doesn't let light sunlight through but you can't help to think that maybe it's also giving up some kind of chemical that's not allowing weeds to germinate but i i tell you what if you got a if you got a field that's heavy in water hemp and you want to do a good job of suppressing it i mean you plant a rye cover crop and i think your eyes will kind of open that hey there's something here that's what i was going to ask you that so you seen anything then with the yield in corn with that or not too much maybe some none I, I can't honestly say that we have seen any yield loss, and I think it largely goes to, you know, in my my mind, and, and I can be completely wrong, but you start terminating that rye maybe 10 to 14 days ahead of time. You have more time for that rye to break down. And the thing with that is, is I think then we leave that rye out there that long to break down, and I think some of those chemicals could potentially leach into that root zone, and I think that's when you're going to see a bigger problem. Or in this case where we're maybe terminating a day or just a two ahead of the planter or right after the planter, I think that corn swells up fairly quickly and it actually comes out of the ground before that toxin or that supposedly aleopathy um, chemical is actually able to get into the root zone. Um, I, I think planting maybe a little bit deeper. I mean, all, all we target two inches everywhere, you know, even two and a quarter if we have to. But I think that's going to play an effect too of maybe not causing such an issue. But there's also been a lot of research done that it depends on the size of the seed too. And with corn being a little bit bigger of a seed, I don't know if it affects it as much. Um, to be honest, I think it's more of a nitrogen play than anything. If you have enough nitrogen up front, I think that's where you're going to kind of mm-hmm. negate some of those problems. Ben, have you any experience or working in uh, trying to apply some of these cover crops in a row, you know, at certain stages, corn, beans, when beans are dropping leaves, corn at or canopy or anything? So I, I guess I've experiment, experimented with both. Uh, I'm going to start with the soybeans. I've had limited success with that. I mean, timing is everything with that. I mean, you want to target maybe 10% leaf drop, um, which we were pretty successful at doing. But the biggest problem was is the harvest timing. If harvest is delayed, and um, we tried rye, we tried clover, uh, radishes, but if harvest is delayed, you got a pretty thick green mat that right. that combine's got to get through. So, I'm not a. It probably will work, but I'm not a big fan of after. I'm not a big fan of, of putting it into the growing soybean crop. Corn, sure. uh, corn, honestly, yeah, I've had success two years in a row now. It is hit and miss. I will give it that. Um, this past year, I experimented with well, it was kale and and uh, we had some annual ryegrass and some clover out there, which actually turned out pretty decent uh, we're targeting probably around that three or four leaf corn we have found out that if we get into that six leaf corn um, our success rate drops pretty drastically so i would say a three to four leaf is probably that prime time to get out there 
Um, my favorite and simplest is still red clover. I mean, it's just a, a fairly cheap crop. I mean, 10, 12 pounds an acre. You can go out there and you broadcast it. And, and, and the success has been fairly decent with that. I, I would say the only challenge that we have run into is no-till acres where that ground is fairly hard. Um, the success rate has dropped, I would say, maybe in half. Um, and it's hit or miss to see if you're actually going to get it going there. So you've been doing most of just a, a ground spreader or airplane or? Everything so far that I've done is with the ground spreader. Ground so spreader. on one farm that I work with, he actually bought a, a rear mount three-point spinner and then he actually manufactured it to sit on the front of his tractor. So as he's actually going out there and side dressing the crop, he's also basically spinning the, really? the clover on at the same time. So it's a one pass and done. Um, the other farm that is doing some of that interseeding, they actually use the, uh, they use the very similar setup um, that the county owns, which is basically a Gandhi airflow box that was basically blowing it in between the rows. If I could have them do anything, I still think seed to soil contact is critical. And if they ever do update their tools, I think that's something that they're going to hopefully look at as accommodating for is actually getting the seed in the ground. Uh, I think it would be a, a vast improvement. But overall, I guess I'm still pretty pleased. So would you say you've kind of got two different environments? You've got a co-seed and then you've got, you know, in, during the growing season application and you've had various success, but which one would you say is your favorite? I mean, the, the co-seeding or, you know? I guess, yeah. I mean, the co-seeding, it really kind of caught my attention. The, the problem that I see with interseeding from some standpoint is, you know, you look at the growing season and that corn is not necessarily going to compete for nutrients and moisture for that clover, but I, I think sunlight's the biggest thing. And, when you get any kind of growth to corn, I mean, it's going to largely stunt a lot of the crop. And that is the one thing I noticed with the co-seeding is, is that clover had a longer time to get established before we got shading. So that whole season, we never really lost any kind of ground cover due to a limited sunlight. I mean, we had a nice thick mat for most of the season. And then I tell you what, I mean, once the corn started senescing right before harvest, I mean, it is amazing the way the clover exploded. Um, where you start looking at the inner seeding, it's honestly hit or miss. Um, you know, depending on how long it takes for that crop to germinate, if it's dry, it seems to kind of slow that germination down a little bit. But the growth rate just doesn't seem to be there. And you almost have to you know, take that corn silage crop off then if it's for corn silage or even grain corn before you really see that explosion from the growth. Mm -hmm. So I would say the co-seeding has definitely got my attention. Yeah, I, mean, I think it sounds like, I mean, that just is really interesting to me. I mean, it sounds like I've been working at this, getting the right equipment for how you're going to do it. Um, if if there if if a grower came up to you and said, okay, I'm, I'm looking to start to get into cover cropping, where are you going to steer this guy, I mean, for for some, for first-time users that want to, whether it be just soil health or, or whatnot, I mean, are you looking more at a, a grass product, or what would your recommendation be for that? If they never had experience with the cover crop, I mean, I, I think the biggest question I ask them right off the bat is if they want it to overwinter. Um, you know, having that cover crop overwinter, to in my mind, is a whole different management style. But if they want something simple, I think it's after wheat. I mean, wheat is a prime time to play in that arena, and it can be simple. I mean, you actually you 
got to realize that you're going to get some wheat regrowth to begin with. So essentially you got some free cover crop out there ready. And then I think it's something simple like oats and maybe throw a little radish out there and even a little barley. I guess like I kind of mentioned, I'm a fairly big fan of barley. So um, that's the avenue that I would have them start on if they want to get a little more risky, um, but not necessarily get too heavily involved. I think the alfalfa fields are the next ones to target because there, there's no better cover crop than one that you already have growing with alfalfa. And if they're worried about compaction or anything else, I mean, it, it takes a, a drill and maybe some, you know, cereal rye and maybe a little bit of radish and, you know, till that right in there. And I think it makes a perfect seed bed for spring then. I mean, you already have your legume growing. Why, why get rid of it in fall? Uh, keep it growing. Um, let it produce the nitrogen that it needs. And next year, I think it'll turn out into be, a, I shouldn't say I think. I mean, I guess I've seen it that it'll turn out to be a, a pretty nice seed bed. Mm. Ben, have you noticed any differences? So I don't know how long this dairy's been doing cover crops or, but have you noticed a, a difference in just their overall seed bed in general? I mean, texture, color, maybe soil test, fertility. I, I mean, have, what are the changes maybe you, you've seen? I would say visually it's just the soil in general. I, I mean, a, a perfect example that I think of is, you know, the, the potting soil that you can buy in the store and, and almost that peat moss look. And I would say in a matter of maybe two or three years, some of their soils are starting to look like that. And I'll be honest, it's it's not down, you know, six to eight inches or a foot yet by any means. And maybe we'll get to that level. I don't know. But the top two to three inches, it's got that perfect look in my mind of, of kind of that chocolate cake appearance. I mean, it just and I'm, I'm kind of strange, I guess, but I'll I'll take a shovel out there and dig in the soil and just smell it. And it's got more of a it's just got more of a vibrant smell to that soil. So I would say, yes, I mean, we've seen some good changes. Um, I'll be honest, this is probably more of a, what I would call a more mellow of a soil. It's not real heavy clay. Um, this 2021 cropping season that we're coming into, I have a fair amount of cover crops on some heavier clay soil. So that'll be probably a new experience and a challenge for me, but if we can get it to work, I don't know that there should be any excuses of why not to do it. Well, I think uh, we learned quite a bit. There's quite a few different options. Um, I know we have a, we get a lot of questions on it. I think there's a lot of interest in it. Uh, I guess I'd, I'm looking forward to hearing some more of your success stories and some other stuff you've been you're gonna um, be working with in the, in the future. So, um, like, thank you for stopping in and talking with us today. Yeah. Thanks, Ben. Thank you.